through the plagues. He removes them from slavery in Egypt. And he brings them through the Red Sea and uses that Red Sea to close in and destroy Pharaoh's army. And so then they travel to Mount Sinai. They receive the law from God. And then they get to the promised land that had been promised to them with Abraham. And I said Abraham brought them out. I meant Moses. But they, they come to the promised land that had been promised to Abraham. But before they cross into the promised land, they send some spies into the land to see what it's like, to see what they're, they're going to be facing, who their opponents are. And the spies return, and all of the spies, except for two of them, say there's just no way. You know, these, these armies are too powerful, the people are too big, we're not equipped for this, we don't have the experience for this. You know, there's no way that we're going to be able to take this land. But there are two men, two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, that say, no, God said we're going to take the land. We can go do it. Well, we don't have anything to fear. Because of the people's rebellion, because they listened to the spies that said, no, there's no way we can take the land, God says, this generation of Israel is not going to get to enter into the promised land. Instead, you're going to go wander in the wilderness until you all die out and the new generation comes up. And so they spend the next 40 years wandering through the wilderness. And during that time, Moses also violates God's command, and God says, you're not going to enter into the promised land either. So there's only two, Caleb and Joshua, that are going to enter into the promised land from that original generation. And so now, where our passage is, is they've come to the border of the promised land. And now it's time for them to enter. All the older generations are gone, and the newer generations now are ready to enter into the promised land. So God had commissioned Joshua within chapter 1, gave him his commands, gave him his instructions, listen to the words that I tell you, follow my commands, don't turn to the left or to the right, Joshua takes these instructions to the people, and that brings us to chapter 2. Let me go ahead and start to read this. And chapter 2 is kind of broken up like a, a sandwich. Okay, we, You can view it like a sandwich. And let me read the first part of it, and then I'll explain this idea. So Joshua, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, says, And Joshua, son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute, whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan, 
as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. So there's a few things that start to raise questions, and we have to be careful because there's these red herrings that, that can sidetrack us from what God wants us to learn within this passage. A couple of those things are, we can start to, to get bent out of shape about Rahab's chosen profession, that she's a harlot, that she's a prostitute. And we start to argue about the ethics of this. You know who doesn't argue about the ethics of Rahab's profession? It's the Bible. The Bible, looking at Rahab, never talks or condemns her for her profession. And this isn't to say that being a prostitute is right. There are other passages of Scripture that deal with that idea. But here, God's purpose in writing this passage and within this story is not for us to debate on the merits of Rahab's profession. The other thing that's a popular pastime with this passage is to get into an argument about is it ever okay to lie? You know, we're told we're not supposed to lie. God abhors dishonesty. Uh, that, you know, let your yes be yes, your no be no. And, and so here, people start to get into debates. When is it okay? And they'll look at Anne Frank in World War II and, uh, and spend all this time arguing. Again, you know who does not argue about Rahab's lies? It's the Bible. Both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, when it's looking at Rahab, it never says, she tried to do this good thing, but she lied, which was wrong. It doesn't get into that debate because that's not the point of this passage. And so if you come to Joshua 2 and you start to read it and you start to debate her profession or you start to debate when is it okay to lie, is it right to lie, you've completely missed the point of the passage. Because like I said, this passage is kind of laid out like a sandwich. And so the first part that I've read, verses 1 through 7, is kind of like the first slice of bread that you lay down for a sandwich, right? Now, is a piece of bread the best part of a sandwich? No. The piece of bread is there to hold in what you really want to eat, right? And so then that's the second part, is verses 8 through 14. It's kind of like the, the meat and the cheese and all the good stuff that's inside of a sandwich. And this is the author's primary point. We're going to see that as we work through that section. And then from verses 15 to the end of the passage, that's like the other piece of bread that you slap on top of that so that you don't get your hands all messy and it's a nice little compact meal. So don't fall for these red herrings. Don't fall into that trap. The other thing that you might ask is 40 years previously, they had sent spies into the land. The spies came back. Why are they sending spies again? What's the point? And if you've read through Scripture, you know the outcome of this story. You know the end of this story. They go into the land. They conquer Jericho. And how do they conquer Jericho? They walk around. Right? That's a great military strategy. Why do you need to send spies for you to walk around a city? You don't need spies for that. Why would he send spies? I think he sent spies because God told him. And then also because it was part of his providential plan. The spies 
are not there to search out how strong is the military, you know, uh, how great are the walls, which portion of the city should we attack from. God sent these spies to meet a woman named Rahab. And so now we get to the central portion. And this is the confession of Rahab. After she hides the spies, she sends the king's men away, and they go to chase off after the non-existent spies. They come down and they have this discussion. And this confession that Rahab is going to make to the spies is really the same confession that we make as Christians to God. Follow along with me. Verses 8 Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that Yahweh has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how Yahweh dried up the land of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan, to Sahan and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. But Rahab makes this confession about the might of Yahweh. And notice, it's not about the might of the Israelite God, or your God, or whoever you worship. She calls out Israel's God by his name. She confesses that Yahweh, this God that you worship, Yahweh that we have heard about is a mighty God. We see the acts that he's done, that he brought you through the Red Sea and used it to destroy Pharaoh's army, and that he brought you through the wilderness and you destroyed these powerful kings and these powerful nations, and now you're here at our doorstep to bring destruction to us. And we know that God, Yahweh, can do this. We know that there's nothing that we can do against the might of Yahweh. And this essentially is the basis of her faith, is understanding and knowing about the mighty acts of God. And this is the normal way that one would come to faith. Even today, this is how somebody becomes a Christian. You don't become a Christian just by hearing Jesus and you say, oh, I'm a Christian. You hear about the acts that God did. Specifically, that he sent his son to come to live a perfect life that we can't live and to die to make that sacrifice to pay for our sin. And we hear about that mighty act of God and that acts as the basis of our faith. Faith. The New Testament tells us no one comes to God without hearing the gospel. So you hear the gospel, the mighty acts of God, and what he's done. And that gives you the basis of your faith. You can even imagine it 
in your normal relationships. You know, I mean, that's the normal process of falling in love, right? It, it's, you don't just come to, to love somebody by just seeing them. You may become infatuated, but you really come to love and care for somebody by knowing who they are. You have this relationship and you understand and you communicate with them and that forms the basis for that romantic relationship. And faith is the same way. So, she confesses about the mighty acts of God. And then in verse 11, she says, and as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. There was no spirit left in any man because of you. For Yahweh, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. He is the only God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now understand, here she makes this confession of the majesty of Yahweh. That not only is he mighty, but he's also majestic. You know, and, and knowing Rahab's background, Rahab was a, a Gentile, but she was also an Amorite. And the Amorites had all sorts of gods, and, and their favorite thing was to sacrifice children to their gods. And in essence here, she's saying all of the Amorite gods, all of the Gentile gods, whoever they are, if they even are real, they're nothing compared to Yahweh, your God. He's the singular, only God in the heavens above and on the earth. He's not just some distant God that's up in the heavens watching, but he's also down here and has power here on earth. Unlike all the Gentile gods, who they would pray to, but never see any action from. Your God, Yahweh, is different. And this is really her conviction of faith. This is what Israel is supposed to say. Israel is told, I'm the Lord your God. I have no other gods before me. I am the only one worthy of worship. Israel, if you keep reading through the Bible, if judges quickly are going to abandon this idea. And they're going to start to worship other gods. And they're going to raise other altars to other gods. But here is this Gentile, Amorite harlot that is confessing that Yahweh is the only God. The only one deserving of worship. So in salvation, you understand the work that Christ did on the cross. And then you make the confession that there's nothing I can do to save myself. I've sinned. I've fallen short of the glory of God. And there's no way for me to recover that. I can't get out of it. You know, it's like if you jump out of an airplane without a parachute, you can flap your arms all you want. It's never going to get you back into the airplane. It's not going to save you 
from sliding on the ground. Once you've sinned, you can't recover. You can't do enough good deeds to make up for your sin. And even that idea is foolish because you continue to sin. You continue to go on and sin no matter how good you try to be. No matter how much you give to charity, it doesn't matter. You continue to sin, you continue to violate God's commandments, and you can't recover. Only God can bring you out of that. Only He is majestic enough to have a plan to send His Son to be that perfect sacrifice to stand Rahab continues on. Verses 12 through 13. It says, Now then, please swear to me by Yahweh that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. So Rahab now makes this confession about the mercy of Yahweh. So she already confessed the might. I know that God has power. I know that Yahweh has power. I know that he's the only God out there operating. The only one that we can cry out to. And now, she says, I... I mean, this is amazing if you think of it. Rahab has not had the theological training of the priests of Israel, the leaders of Israel. She doesn't have the Bible. She can't go down to the library and check out commentaries to study. She's this prostitute living in the promised land where Israel has not been for hundreds of years. And she understands how mighty Yahweh is, how majestic he is, and that he has mercy. And that she can share in that mercy. It's like Ruth. With Ruth, she recognizes as she comes back with Naomi to the promised land that Yahweh is the only one worthy of worship. She says, your God is going to be my God. And she makes her confession also. And then later on, she looks to the mercy of God through Boaz and says, Boaz, spread your wings over me. Cover me. Like a little chicken. And God, likewise, spreads his wings over her and protects her and delivers both her and Naomi and saves them from being destitute and certain death and redeems her. But before that, we have Rahab this Amorite woman pleading for the mercy of God. And that's the evidence of her faith. She had the basis of her faith. She had the conviction of her faith. And now, we see the evidence of it. You know, her actions here are not what saves her. Her actions that she does by saving the spies are just the evidence of what's in her heart. That she believes in Yahweh. She has faith in Yahweh. Only Yahweh. And she seeks his mercy. 
Our saving faith today is the same way. The good works that we do after we become a Christian aren't what save us. You know, our baptism doesn't save us. Uh, coming to church doesn't save us. You know, being nice to your wife doesn't save you. None of those things save you. They're the outworking of what's going on with Jesus Christ. So that is the meat of this passage. This is what the author wants to get through is this mighty, majestic, and merciful Yahweh. And ultimately, the entire book of Joshua carries that central theme throughout the entire book. You know, the author is just setting it up. Here's what we're going to be talking about. Here's what we're going to see. And he affirms it later on in the book. This is the point. This is the purpose. This is why this has been written. Then our passage closes out with Says, and the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. Do not tell the business of ours. Then when Yahweh gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully. Then she let them down by a rope to the window. For her house was built into the city walls, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you and hide there for three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward, you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house your father, and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then, if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head. We shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed. She tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills, and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. The pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills, passed over, came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Truly, Yahweh has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. Again, people get caught up in this closing section, and they start to look at the scarlet cord. And they say, oh, it's the scarlet cord. It's red. It saved her. And, and, and so it's got to be you know, an allegory or a type of the, the blood of Christ. Again, who doesn't view the scarlet cord as an allegory or the type of the blood of Christ? The Bible. When the Bible looks at this passage, when it talks about this, it doesn't focus on the scarlet cord. The scarlet cord doesn't save her. 
God saves her. Yahweh saves her. Her faith is what brings her salvation. You could maybe say the scarlet cord looks back at the Passover. But even the Bible doesn't make that connection for you. So then what's the point? What's the entire point of this passage? Think about it. God takes the time and the spies to Jericho, knowing full well the way that he's going to conquer this city is by having them just march around. There's no need for the spies to go. The people don't need to be encouraged. You read in Joshua chapter 1, they're already encouraged. They're ready to go. They know the mistakes of their forefathers because they've been there in the wilderness wandering with them for 40 years. They don't need to be told, you know, don't make a mistake. Yeah, they're ready to go. They didn't need spies. They would have gone straight into the land. But evidently, God told Joshua to send these spies into the land so that they could go, that they could meet Rahab, and that God could redeem this woman, Rahab, so that he could bring her salvation. Why does he do this? What does he do with her? It's not the last that we hear about Rahab. Later on in chapter 6 of Joshua, chapter 6, verse 25, it says, But Rahab, the prostitute in her father's household, and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved the life. She has lived in Israel for this did the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Not only did she live within Israel, but she became a part of Israel. She became a part of the people of God, of the family of God of Israel. She marries a man. Solomon, not Solomon. In Matthew, Chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. It says, And Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nisham, and Nisham, the father of Solomon, and Solomon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse, Jesse, the father of David. Rahab to Ruth and ultimately to David. David, the type, the symbol of the everlasting king that was going to be Judah. Rahab is allowed to be a part of this lineage of Christ. Not only is she redeemed, but she's made part of the plan of redemption But what is the point of this passage? It was to remind Israel what their purpose was. Their purpose wasn't just to go off and live a good life, just to go live and be happy, uh, just to conquer the land so they had a place to live. They were there to recognize the might of Yahweh, the majesty of Yahweh, and see the mercy of Yahweh. So Rahab is brought into this family 
to be a part of that lineage that ultimately would bring redemption to the entire world. Bring that plan of salvation to all of the Gentiles. Which then leaves us with a choice. We're presented with the might, the majesty, the mercy of Yahweh through Jesus Christ or our own plan, the world's plan, whatever else is over here. We have this choice in front of us. If you haven't made that choice, it'll be made for you at your death. But right now, you have the opportunity to choose salvation. Be like Rahab and say, I've heard about the mighty acts of God. I know that he is the only one that rules over this world. I know that he's offered me mercy that I can't receive on my own through Jesus. Or, like the rest of Jericho, follow your own way. Follow your own culture, your own world. It separates you from the mercy of God. This is why God gave us the story of Ray. That we could see him in action. That we can look at the deeds that he's done. That we could see that plan of redemption laid out. That it wasn't just for Israel. That it wasn't something that you had to obtain through sacrifices, through good deeds, through good acts, but rather through faith in God. Thank you.